0: Good evening, take your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter number 6. Hopefully you'll be able to hear me better tonight, since I took the microphone out of my pocket, where it was this morning, which went right along with the whole day, so. It got better after I left here, I don't know what the what the situation was. Judges chapter 6. In May of 1835, an 18-year-old boy went to the deacons in a church in Boston. He'd been raised in a church uh, in almost total ignorance of the gospel. But when he moved to Boston to make his fortune, he began to attend a Bible teaching and preaching church. Then in April of 1855, his uh, Sunday school teacher came into the store where he was working and simply and quite persuasively shared the gospel with this young man and urged him to put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had, and now he was, Applying uh, to the church for membership. One fact quickly became obvious. This young man was almost totally ignorant of biblical truth. One of the deacons asked him, Son, what has Jesus Christ done for us all and for you, which entitles him to our love? His response was, I don't know, I think Christ has done a great deal for us. But I can't think of anything in particular that I know of. Hardly an impressive start. Years later, his Sunday school teacher said of him, I can truly say that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think the committee of the church seldom met an applicant for membership who seemed more unlikely to ever become a Christian of clear and decided views. Still less to fill any space of public or extended usefulness. Nothing happened very quickly to change their minds. The deacons decided to put him to a year-long instruction program to teach him some basic Christian truths. Perhaps they kind of wanted to work on some of the rough spots in his life as well. Not only was he ignorant of spiritual truth, he was barely literate, and his spoken grammar was atrocious. The year-long probation didn't help very much. At the end of the second interview, there was only minimal improvement in the quality of his answers, but since it was obvious he was sincere, and committed, if ignorant, Christian, they accepted him as a church member. It might surprise you to learn that that young man, that everyone was convinced would never amount to anything, name was D.L. Moody, and that he would be credited in his lifetime with speaking publicly to over 100 million people about spiritual matters. Not a high school graduate himself, in 1879 he established a school for girls, in 1881 a school for boys, in 1886 he established an institution that would later become Moody Bible Institute. The man that we're going to be looking at tonight is called as a judge of Israel and is much like what we see in D.L. Moody's life. Extremely unlikely that he would ever be included in a hall of fame for Christians or a hall of faith. But if we look at Hebrews chapter 11, we do find his name. His name was Gideon. As we've looked at Israel in the book of Judges, we've seen over and over that Israel was plundered and pillaged by powerful nations around them, by the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. They all took their turn. Each time when things got bad enough, the Israelites would remember to call out to God. Each time that they would repent of their sins, and they would follow God. In their misery, they would call out to Him, and He would rescue them. Each time, though, they would again forget and return again to their sinful ways. As we pick up with the story in Judges chapter 6, it's been seven long years under Midianite control. These were fierce Bedouin nomads. They had raided the land relentlessly. Their invasion was so massive and so overpowering that Israel had literally gone underground. They were living in caves and dens and mountain strongholds just to survive. Israel in all of her history had never lived at a more humble and humiliated level. Finally, Israel turned to the Lord. But according to verse 6 of chapter 6, it was because of the Midianites not because of recognition of their sin. They were crying out to the Lord in pain, but not necessarily in repentance. For the first time, God does not respond with a deliverer. Instead, he sent them a prophet with a rebuke. In verse 11, we're introduced to Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which in, was in Ophra, Oprah, which means dusty place, by the way, which belonged to Joash the Asbinite right, and his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. You'll find that more space is dedicated, devoted to the story of Gideon and the book of Judges, some 100 verses, than any of the other Judges. And Gideon is the only judge whose personal struggles with his faith are recorded. Gideon stands as a testament to all those individuals who have a hard time believing that God can make some, something out of them or do anything with them. When we're introduced to Gideon, he doesn't seem to, have, to be much of a hero or an outstanding man kind of have to understand what he's doing here to really understand where he's at. He is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now the wine press was always at the foot of a hill because they brought the grapes down from the vineyard. But in contrast, the threshing floor was always on the top of the highest elevation possible in order to catch the wind and so that the chaff would be blown away. But here we find Gideon, not only down at the bottom of the hill, but down in the pit itself, threshing. This certainly is no place to take your crop in order to do your threshing. It's per- virtually useless unless you're try- your main purpose is to stay hidden. You can almost see Gideon's frustration. Why doesn't he go to the hilltop? Well, he's afraid of the Midianites. He doesn't want them to see that he is threshing wheat. If the Midianites see him, they will take his grain away and perhaps kill him in the process. Why should he go through all this work and then end up losing the food anyway? Here he is uh, down in this hole getting no air, Certainly no wind. He pitches the the grain up in the air. What happens? The chaff doesn't blow away. No, it comes down around his neck, into his clothing, makes him very uncomfortable, trying his best to thresh wheat down in a hole all the time, probably condemning himself for being too cowardly to go up on the hilltop. Gideon's having a very frustrating experience, but God is going to use him it is at this point that Gideon has a heavenly visitor Gideon's response to this visitor is uh, very informative because it raises three questions that reveal Gideon's personal spiritual struggles now I didn't give you an outline tonight so I'll make it simple for you There are just three questions you have to write write down if you want to have them Three personal questions that reveal Gideon's spiritual struggles. The first question, does God really care what happens to us? In verse 12, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, at that point, he must have looked around. Who? Me? Me? You've got to be kidding. I'm a mighty man of valor. I'm a mighty man of courage. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Gideon did not at first realize that this visitation of the angel of the Lord was in fact a direct encounter of God himself. This is what theologians call a Christophany. When Christ temporarily appears in human form before he is born in Nazareth in, human, in a human body. The heavenly messenger begins by saying, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. In this statement, we see one of the great truths of Scripture. And that is, when God looks at us, He does not see us as we are. But He sees us as what we can become. As He works in our lives. Other people look at us and they see our flaws and our failings and God looks at us and He sees our potential. He comes to us in our weakness with the promise of His presence and the fact that He will transform our inadequacy through His strength. Gideon's response to this greeting was unbelief. Gideon is asking a thoroughly modern question It's one we hear fairly often, especially as tragedies have struck our country. Where is God in all of this? Have you not heard that in some of the tragedies our country has gone through? Where is God in all of this? Gideon has brought up the age-old theological complaint about the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, and if He is all-good, why does He allow bad things to happen, especially to His own people? Gideon has set himself up for a life of frustration. He was bitter with God for not coming through for him. Notice, if you would, that the angel of the Lord did not say that the Lord was with Israel at this time. He said that He was with Gideon. Frankly, he was not with Israel because of their sin. The angel said, the Lord is with you, singular, with you, Gideon. But Gideon can't believe that God would be with him. He wants to know where all these miracles are that his fathers have told them about. He believed the Lord had forsaken Israel, and he was wrong. The Lord had really not forsaken them, they had forsaken the Lord. So he's in a bad state mentally and in a bad state spiritually. Actually, he not only had an inferiority complex, but he was a skeptic and cynical. This was the man Gideon. But this was the man God had called. The first question questions God's heart. His second question Doubts God's wisdom. His second question is, does God know about my limitations? Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, "In this, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And so he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon is overwhelmed by his commission from the Lord, and he did as many do. He argued. Like many of us, when we're given a job to do for the Lord, he began to dredge up all the excuses why it couldn't be done. And while the second part of that statement may be true, he was the least or the youngest in his family. The first statement can't be taken too seriously since we're told in verse number 27 that even in this time of devastation, Gideon himself had ten servants. It wasn't all that humble. At first, of all Gideon could see were the odds were seemingly stacked against him. Charles Swindoll says, Our eyes are focused on one of four places at all times. Our circumstances, on others, on ourselves, or on the Lord. If we focus on any of the first three, and not the Lord, we will ultimately fail. Gideon seems to think, that God could not do anything because he and his family were nothing. Gideon was not a man of strong faith or courage, and God had to be patient in his work for him, with him, to prepare him for leadership. And God is always ready to make us what we ought to be if we're willing to submit to his will. Sometimes our problem can be almost the opposite of Gideon's. One author says, our problem today is that most of us are too strong for God to use. Most of us are too capable for God to use. You notice that God uses only weak vessels. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27 tell us, For you see your calling, brethren, how many, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty you know why God you does not use most of us we're too strong most of us have too much talent for God to use us most of us are doing our own will and going our own way we are multitudes of people talented people people with ability whose God is not using do you know why they are too strong for God to use Paul questions this and the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen yea and things which are not to bring to naught things which are that no flesh should glory in his presence God wants weak vessels and that's the only kind that he will get used God follows this policy so that no flesh will ever glory in his presence. When God gets ready to do anything, he chooses the weakest thing that he can get in order to make it clear that it is he that is doing it and not they themselves. If we are tempted to question God's wisdom, we need to remember the words of A.W. Tozer who wrote, All of God's acts are done in perfect wisdom. First for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. The real question is not Gideon's adequacy or inadequacy, but God's wisdom and power. God once asked Abraham in Genesis 18, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer, of course, is still the same. No. Of course not. The great missionary Hudson Taylor once said, all of God's great men have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on His being with them. They counted on His faithfulness. The third and final question, God, how can I know that you're really in this? Verse number 16. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who walk with me. Do not depart from me, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. He said, I will wait until you come back. And so Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread An ephod ephod of flower. The question of discerning God's will is an ongoing problem in Gideon's life. Gideon wanted concrete confirmation that it was indeed God who was calling him into action, and therefore he asked for a sign. The angel affirmed the presence of the Lord and power to defeat the Midianites. But that was enough for Gideon. He wanted a sign, some unmistakable proof that God would enable him to carry out what he considered an impossible mission. The proof came when Gideon presented his offering to the to this angelic visitor in verse number twenty-one. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire arose. Out of the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. In a dramatic fashion, the angel of the Lord extended his rod and touched the food that Gideon had provided. And in the blink of an eye, fire sprang from the rock and consumed the offering. The angel then vanished and left the terror-stricken Gideon with the realization that he had been talking with the Lord. And he exclaims in verse 22, Alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon asked for a sign, and then after he had received it, he was sure that God, the God who had granted it was now going to kill him. But the Lord reassured him in verse 23, Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. There is one more incident that I want to examine tonight. Gideon wanted another sign from God. It became known as Gideon's fleece. If you look at verses 36 and 37, you'll find the story. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall place a a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece, fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you shall save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Sure enough, the ground was dry, but the wool was wet. There was only one problem, and that is that the wool would naturally soak up more moisture than the ground would. So the test really didn't prove all that Gideon wanted it to, and perhaps Gideon had realized that because he asked God for a second test in verse 39. This time he wanted the ground wet and the fleece dry and God graciously obliged him. Many Christians, many people misunderstand what all this means. Many Christians have used a fleece as a means of determining God's will. Gideon's fleece was not a means of finding God's will. Gideon already knew what God's will was, he already knew what God wanted him to do. He just needed encouragement that God was with him. Most fleeces that Christian put, put out, I would call, self-fulfilling prophecies. In other words, it's Sunday morning. It's raining outside. And you say, God, if you want me to miss church... Just let me sleep through the alarm. Hallelujah. God delivers. You slept through the alarm. That's not an answer, and that's not even a fleece. Seriously, to lay a fleece before God is to say, Okay, God, if you really want me to do this, then you will let this happen at 10 o'clock tonight. Or you say, Lord, if you really want me to do this, then you will make this and this and this happen for me. Let me just mention a few problems of using or putting out a fleece as a means of determining God's will. First of all, it's a misunderstanding of the text. The fleece was not a means of determining God's will. Secondly, It comes very close to attempting to manipulate God or to dictate to God what he must do in order that you will be satisfied. And third, it ends up shifting the responsibility for our decisions from ourselves to God. God, you told me to do this. God, you showed me to do this. So is it always wrong, then, to ask for a sign? Now, this may sound strange in the light of what I just said. But no, no, it's not always wrong to ask for a sign. If you're simply asking for guidance, rather, as to how, what next step you should take. Father, will you make your will so plain that I will know the next step? Is that a fleece? No. Because you're not attempting to box God in. You're not telling God what he has to do. You're just asking God to show you what your next step should be. Gideon became became a great man of God in spite of himself he became a great man of faith he is included in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 fortunately God is willing to work through our weaknesses to accomplish his will we may struggle with knowing what his will is and we certainly struggle with our own limitations But in the end, all that matters is that we do what God tells us to do. The truth is, we still struggle with those three questions. Does God care about what's happening to me? Yes. Does God know what he's asking me to do? Yes. Can I know that God is directing me? Yes. And yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your guidance and direction in our lives. We would like a moment-by-moment uh, direction. We'd like to know every step that we're about to take and that it's the right one. But if we did that, if you provided that information, there would be no room for faith. No room for us to step out and follow you based solely on faith. Help us, Lord. We, we're weak. We identify with Gideon and his desire to know that you're with him at all times. We know <coughs> that you're ever-present. We know that you're always available to us. Father, I pray that you'd help us in times of indecision, times in which we we would like to know the exact answer to our question that we would be willing to wait on you to know that you're going to guide us and direct us but in so doing it's going to require faith it's going to require that we trust in you father we know that your faithfulness has always been proven been proven in the past and the great heroes of the faith and we know it's always been proven in our lives as well forgive us for the times that we fail you strengthen us when we're weak we ask it in jesus name amen Would You stand.